Hi, everyone, and welcome to our 20th episode of Her Story. This is your host, Cassidy Reed, and this week I'm talking with Rosanna Moore. Rosanna is originally from the UK, but she spent the past eight years in the States. She has most recently been a private harp instructor and professional harpist in Rochester. She's performed with multiple orchestras, and she is a huge promoter of new music. She has just gotten a job out at the University of Oregon, so she just moved out to Oregon the past few days, so I want to congratulate her on her new job as a harp teacher at University of Oregon. Congratulations, Rosanna. Please enjoy this episode. Rosanna is a fantastic person, an amazing individual to learn some great insight from. Please make sure you are liking and sharing this episode with your friends and you're following all of our accounts on social media. We have a Facebook page, we have an Instagram account, and we have a Twitter account. So please make sure if you have any of those forms of social media that you're giving us a follow, you're giving us a like. Please make sure you are also subscribing and following our podcast on our multiple outlets. So that includes Spotify and Apple Podcasts as well. Enjoy this episode, and I will see you next week. Hi, my name is Rosanna Moore. I am a harpist and an actress. I am originally from Manchester in the United Kingdom, but I've been living in America for nearly eight years at this point. So I'm, I'm trying very hard not to pick up the Rochester twang. <laughs> I have the Buffalo twang. It's even worse. Don't worry about it. Yeah. I've worked very hard on it. People go, you're not from around here, are you? I'm like, no, no, nope. you are correct. <laughs> Yeah, um, I was interviewing somebody and they asked me, they said, are you from the Midwest? And I was like, no, not quite. (laughs) We're heading in that direction. Yeah, no, I have a very distinct (laughs) accent. Thank you. I know. (laughs) So again, people have, uh, many people ask if I'm from Australia. I'm not sure why. I don't, I don't think my, my Northern twang does not sound that Australian, but you never know. <laughs> no, we're just, we're just dumb Americans. We can't tell the difference between <laughs> Australian and British. And we just can't. It just, nope, doesn't happen. Does not happen. All right. Oh, Let's talk a little bit about uh, your early experiences. So what got you into music in the first place? I think I always just enjoyed music. When I was very, very little, my, my parents always used to play music around the house. Neither of them are musicians, but they, they enjoy it, which is good. <laughs> and then when I was about four or five years old, I saw a harp for the first time. I was a teenage boy who brought a harp uh, to the little preschool I was in and basically played the harp for us. And I sat cross-legged in the front row going, <gasps> that's really pretty. I want one. (laughs) Went home in the evening (laughs) and went, mom, I want to play the harp. And she turned around and said, no, you don't. (laughs) So (laughs) that was my first experience of asking to play the harp. And basically because it's big and terrifying and expensive, but I kept pestering my parents and my dad's job moved around a lot while I was growing up. So when I moved, when I was about eight or nine years old, the school I went to happened to have a harp program and have a harp teacher. I'd been pestering for four years at this point. So my parents were like, okay, fine. She'll give up in six months. It'll be fine. And 
22 years later, I have not given up yet. So <laughs> I think my parents are still convinced I'm going to keep them in their old age. And I have to remind them that I'm a classical musician, not a, um, not a banker or a scientist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's awesome. I think it's so cool that your school had a heart program. I had never heard of a public school having a heart lessons or program or anything until I got my job this year. And actually a few of our elementary schools offer harp as part of orchestra. And I thought that was oh, so great. crazy. And now uh, where, are you in Greece or are you in? Yes, I'm in Greece. I teach in the Greece yes, School I, District. A couple of my students uh, came to me from the Greece School District. Isn't that so crazy? Yeah. I, I think it's fantastic because it it's a wonderful instrument, but again, like kids and parents in particular are put off because it's a incredibly large and they, they mm-hmm. imagine this beautiful, golded, expensive thing. But most students do not start off on a pedal harp. They start off on a, what I call a klasach, which is a, um, the, just the Gallic word for a folk harp or a lever harp, mm-hmm. which is a lot smaller. It's still cumbersome, but it's a lot smaller. It's easier to track around. And instead of the seven pedals that you have at the base of the harp, each string has a lever. So most kids start off on that. They will play that for three or four years. And then if they want to, and if they're going to continue, you can look at going on to the pedal harp, which enables you to play an orchestra and play a lot more of the sort of standard harp repertoire. However, obviously because I'm British, I have a strong folk background and a lot of colleagues of mine kept up our our Klazakh and lever harp playing as well because there's there's such a wealth of history with that instrument and the folk music with the harp is still a huge thing in the United Kingdom. So it's interesting. There's a lot of stuff you can do with both instruments. Yeah. So you went to Royal Northern College of Music, Cheatham School of Music, and then you did your DMA at Eastman School of Music in Rochester. So can you talk a little bit about your collegiate experiences being a female harpist and pursuing the things that you pursued at the college level? Sure. So, I mean, I did start off with, I was very fortunate that I went to Cheatham. So that was a, probably the equivalent is Interlochen in the US. So it was a boarding school for musicians and there were people from all all walks of life some of my colleagues came from fairly wealthy families some colleagues came from very very poor families but if you could play an instrument to a high level or sing or what have you you were given a position in the school and they would find a way to pay your fees which is really Mm -hmm. incredible so from age 13 i was surrounded by incredible musicians it's some of them went into doing other careers but i a lot of them are sort of really well-renowned in what they do. And I, I, I always feel very proud that they were some of my classmates. But I always knew that I wanted to go into music. And then I stayed in Manchester because I wanted to stay with uh, my teacher that I'd had at Chet's, uh, Erilyn Jones, who is a brilliant, brilliant pedagogue. Being a female harpist, do you know what? It's, it's what you expect when someone says the harp you expect this beautiful woman with long hair and a big gown and they (laughs) float down. Like a fairy. Yes, like a fairy or a princess and they come and play a glissando and all your woes disappear. I am not that type of harpist. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I have the long hair and I do enjoy wearing gowns, but I actually 
suddenly during my undergrad, I've kind of I come around to this as I've got, grown older. But when I finished my undergraduate, I actually vowed I would never play for an orchestra. I would never have a professional orchestral job. I would never take an orchestral audition. I now play with the Rochester Philharmonic. So that <laughs> went out the window. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, That's something that I, I do find a lot of people say, oh, well, you're going to take orchestral auditions. Yes. I'm like, no. Uh, I actually wanted to be a jazz musician when I finished my undergrad. I mm. had done a number of competitions and I'd done quite well in it. I actually I somehow got the improvisation award in my undergraduate, probably much to the chagrin of the saxophonists and the trumpet, trumpet players in my <laughs> yeah, school. They're like, a harpist? What? <laughs> much to my surprise as well. But I was good. I wanted to have my own jazz band and travel the world playing jazz clubs. And That's I- so cool. Don't really know what happened to that. I still play jazz a little bit, just not as not as seriously, I guess. And um, I never sort of pursued it that way because I wanted to look at doing a master's. Uh, so after my undergrad, I took a year off because I really wanted to think about where I wanted to study. And mm-hmm. I'd always wanted to come to Eastman uh, because my teacher in the UK had studied with Professor Bride at Eastman for her master's. So I'd, I'd known of Professor Bride for years. I had my first ever masterclass with her when I was 12 years old and was completely enamored with her. And fortunately, I got a place at Eastman, managed to find the funds and came here for my master's. And when I said in my audition that I didn't want to play an orchestra ever again. Professor Bride just turned around and said, hmm, we'll see. <laughs> and <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, then I don't get a choice in this. And I, I am very pleased that I, uh, I came to Eastman because I did get a lot of the more, uh, I got a lot of the standard things from my undergrad, but my uh, teacher for undergrad very much looks for nurturing the things that you are good at. So if you're good at folk music, she encourages you to do that as well as doing your orchestra orchestral work your scales and arpeggios and all the stuff that you have to do but she will really nurture uh, that part of it whereas professor bride was like you already know how to do the things you love doing mm-hmm. let's polish up some of the other stuff so it was a really good combination yeah that's great in reading some of the bio that you sent me i, I you talked about your orchestral experience and playing with the Rochester Phil, and you've played with mm-hmm. a few other orchestras as well. You also do a lot of new music. So what are some oh, of yeah. the projects <laughs> that you're working on <laughs> new music-wise? The most recent thing that I've done is with my bassoon and harp duo called Hats and Heels, which is great because I have an avid shoe collection. Anyone who knows me in person knows I love shoes. Mm-hmm. And my bassoonist, Blair Kerner, who is wonderful, has a lot of hats. So we decided, oh, let's put that together. That's really fun. But, um, we... Oh, you know what? Actually, I know Blair. Oh, Blair. she's amazing. I she love was one woman. of my camp counselors when I was in high school. Seriously? Yeah, oh, I went, I went to an orchestra <laughs> festival when I was in high school mm-hmm. and she was one of the camp counselors there and she was the bassoon teacher. And it was so funny because I came to Eastman and I didn't even realize she was working there. Yeah. <laughs> and I ran into her like right before school started and, we were, and I was like, do you remember me? Cause she hasn't seen me since I was like, <laughs> uh, I was probably like 15 or 16. I think when I went, mm-hmm. she was like, Oh, of course I remember you. I was like, Oh man, I must've had some notorious reputation. Then. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> no, I, she I is just, <laughs> she is the epitome of professionalism. That woman just remembers mm-hmm. everything, which is incredible. But yeah, we started this bassoon and harp duo last year, uh, kind of on a whim. It was going to be a one-off thing where Blair asked if I would play in her faculty recital for the Eastman Community Music School because we're both on faculty there. Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, sure. I've, I've played a bunch of bassoon and harp rep with a couple of other colleagues before, so that'll be fine. Her mum came up to us afterwards and said, oh, it's you two work so well together. It's such a shame this is a one-off. So mm-hmm. uh, it, Blair's mum, Jill, is uh, to blame for everything that happened after that. But this year... Again, we were supposed to do a faculty recital and we wanted to do something based on the 100th anniversary of the signing of the 19th Amendment, 19th Amendment, mm-hmm. and uh, which also coincides with the 200th uh, anniversary of Susan B. Anthony. Yes. So we put together a grant proposal for and a bunch of things and we asked a load of female composers to write us music which is great and then the pandemic hit and we went oh well <laughs> literally <laughs> ruined we everything yeah I, but it's uh, we did something a little different we decided to still put on the concert we didn't do quite as long of a program as we had wanted to it, it was missing uh, another commission from there which we just didn't have the funds to do but we had managed to raise enough to pay a few composers to write for us. And when was this? Not this Sunday, the Sunday before. We went to a recording studio in town, which is run by a dear colleague of mine, and we recorded everything. So it's a bit different from doing the live from your living room, which Mm -hmm. everyone's doing at the moment. And it's really charming and wonderful. But after five months, I'm going, yes, I want to see something with a a little bit better um, quality. Mm-hmm. Then you can then you can get in your living room, and mm-hmm. so we went down early in the morning and recorded our program. Mark Webster, who was our engineer, put everything together in like two hours, wow. and then we presented it all on Zoom later that afternoon. And we had world premieres from three composers: one from Scotland, one from Minneapolis, and one who lives in uh, upstate New York as well. Uh, We had an East Coast recording from a uh, a harpist composer who lives in Hawaii. Mm. And then whilst we were putting this program together, we realized that everyone on our program were white cis women. Because basically we'd, we'd asked our friends, we'd asked people that we knew were interested in writing for us. And when the Black Lives Matter stuff started happening really in earnest a couple of months ago, we went yeah, this, this is a little tone deaf. We need to do something. And so we did mm-hmm. a couple of arrangements of Florence Price songs, uh, which were beautiful, charming, charming pieces, but have also made a pledge going forward that we have, when we commission people, we have to commission pe- uh, people of color as well yeah. as just people we know, which uh, is just, it are groups of people that we thought to ask just didn't include a composer of color and it seemed very tone deaf to not do something. Yeah. And I think that's, I'm so glad that you made yourselves aware of that situation and you chose to actively adjust that in your project, because I feel like when we consider the issues of feminism and those things, the issues of feminism are very much catered to white cisgendered women. Because historically, those were the people that, you know, had the rights before 
the rest of our gender did, you know, like women had those rights and that access beforehand. And so I think it's really great that you're making it a point to make sure that you are promoting and amplifying the voices of composers of color as well, because I feel like composers of color and people that are non-binary but identify, may identify as women, are kind of left to the wayside. And so I I really commend you for your efforts in doing that, because I think that's a great thing to do. And that's an awesome thing that you did with your project. Yeah, it's one of those I'm very aware of trying not to come across as asking these people to be tokenism because I one of the biggest pet peeves for me is and I know why we have them but women in music festivals and I know we used to have one at Eastman and it was a huge thing that was wonderful and I got to uh, play in it my first year at Eastman but we shouldn't need to do that at this point (laughs) I understand why it exists but we shouldn't need to to do this and actually one of the pieces that was written for us was written by Amy Nam she's a harpiston composer and she did her masters in harp up in McGill and so obviously a a primarily French part of the world French-speaking part of the world and when she put herself on a program as a composer she had to choose between being a compositeur or a compositrice which is kind of interesting. It's the same with actor and actress. Do you just say actor or do you say, no, 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 I am a, I am a woman actor. And uh, the same yeah. with composer in, um, in French because uh, they have such a gendered language and that's been something that has been discussed, especially in the last few years. But also in, in English, we often say, oh yes, this is a female composer or a woman yeah. composer. And you sh- that shouldn't be something yeah, I hate that label. Like, I am a female trumpet player. No, I'm a trumpet yeah. player. Yeah, you, you play. The, actually, the interesting thing being a harpist is, obviously, I play an instrument that primarily women play, certainly in America and in the UK. Yeah. But some of the greatest harpists in the world have all been men. And that's, again, uh, looking at the, imagining the beautiful woman in the gown and the long hair floating down on a cloud. The harp is a pain in the neck. <laughs> it's huge. It's cumbersome. It's it, to actually play it properly, you need to put a lot of power behind it. So it's it, it's something that I always find very odd that people envisage this beautiful uh, this beautiful image with the harp. But actually, it's it's a workhorse. You need to be able to put some power behind it. And yeah, yeah it, it's very odd. It's sort of probably the opposite of what you have being a, a woman who plays a brass instrument, being a man playing the harp, you get a lot of, oh, you must be very effeminate, which is yeah, really ridiculous. <laughs> I only know one male harpist and I went to my undergrad with him. And yeah, he is a straight, white, cisgendered male and he plays the harp and he's mm-hmm. the only one that I know of. <laughs> I... I mean, there's there's plenty plenty of men who play the harp who are incredible. So the principal harpist with the Metropolitan Opera, who is actually just about to move over to the LA Philharmonic, is Emmanuel Sisson. There's Remy van Kesteren, who is uh, Dutch and he runs the Dutch harp competition. He's incredible. Uh, Xavier de Maistre. Like there are so many incredible men that play the harp, and a lot of the time they're asked sort of, oh, how do you feel playing a feminine instrument? And they go, I just play the harp. What's yeah. The big deal? Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's crazy how gendered instruments become and how the perceptions for 
each sex is so skewed in different ways for every instrument. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's ridiculous. It's really, yeah. really silly. And so you're talking about your, your changeover groups and your, your duo and everything. Yes. And I also read that you recently signed for a record label and you're going to release an album of all American heart music in 2021. Can you talk a little bit about your album and what it will include? Yes. So this is a really new thing. I'm still waiting for <laughs> sort of extra bits of confirmation, but I got an email from the Orpheus Classical label saying, hi, we're looking to sponsor some people. Want to apply? And I threw in an application going, yeah, I'm not going to hear anything back from this. And uh, they wrote back about a month later saying, oh yeah, we'd like to partially sponsor this. <laughs> like, great. So I thought about what I wanted to record and because I work with composers so much why not present music that has been written for me so most of the music is going to be the stuff that was written primarily for me by colleagues of mine whose music I feel should be presented uh, and recorded and then I'm going to put a piece on there by Eli Siegmeister which I actually played for my first DMA recital uh, which was, it's just an incredible piece of music and it gives the, it, so it's not all contemporary music and it doesn't scare everybody off. It means that, that there'll be something on there that has only been recorded once and it was recorded back in the 50s. So I, mm -hmm. I want to do an updated recording of Siegmeister piece. I love all your projects. This is awesome. And I oh, think I, do, I don't, I just don't know how to say no to things. I don't know how to relax. Oh. <laughs> Girl, me too. People are asking me like, how are you go? How are you working full time, going to grad school full time? And now you have this podcast. I'm like, I don't know. I just, I yep. on myself. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, I, I just started a podcast as well. And it's just, it's really fun, but it's a lot of work. I didn't realize how much work it would be. I didn't realize how many hours editing would take. Just <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I'm working with Blair and actually the violist in my flute viola harp trio, and we all have different jobs. Thankfully, I am not the editor because I, I am someone who is not the most tech savvy on the planet. I can <laughs> work an iPhone. I can like do a little video and stuff, but going in and working in Audacity, I'm going. I have no idea how this works. Yes. You've done some research on music and theatrical performance practices. Yes. And I think that's so cool because I feel like a lot of people equate doing research and getting published with people that are completely in the world of academia, like whether they're a professor or they're in education or they're a theorist or a musicologist and that sort of thing. And I think it's so awesome that you are pursuing a topic that you're obviously very passionate about. You're doing the research and then you're going the step further and you're getting yourself published and you're going to pre present at the World Harp Congress and things like that. And I think that's so, so cool. Can you talk a little bit about some of your research that you've done recently? Absolutely. So I honestly, this research is the reason why I did the doctorate or, or part of the reason why I did, I decided to get that final degree because I have always been a performer. I love teaching and I love performing, but I did always have that niggle at the back of my head, probably from my dad. Cause my dad is, um, I, as I say, not a mus musician, doesn't actually have a doctorate, but a fiercely intelligent man who was, uh, did biochemistry for his undergrad and, fiercely intelligent, very annoying. I never tell him this, but <laughs> uh, I always sort of went, yeah, I'd like to prove my worth a bit, prove that I can write a, a paper and not have it be horribly dry. So that's something that has always really interested me. 
and the lecture recital at Eastman was something that I could really do something that was performance practice related because my, my research isn't something into the history of the harp or the, uh, the theory or the analysis for a particular sonata for harp. I wanted to do something that was relevant to performers because we always talk about everyone's technique and you talk about perhaps performance practice if you're um, playing baroque or classical music but we don't talk about actual performance practice when you walk on stage i think the probably the only people who get this are singers because they are given some form of acting training because because they're singing words it makes a lot of sense but uh, the example i use is if I see another trumpet player, I'm sorry, <laughs> I see another awkward trumpet player walk on stage and sort of shuffle on and bow, I may throw tomatoes at them from the audience. <laughs> uh, yeah, we're so stiff with everything. <laughs> I, but just any musicians like that, where you don't have to be someone who is over the top. I know I'm slightly over the top and very effusive and I sort of walk on and do the big bow and I'm very comfortable doing that and I'm very comfortable talking in public but other musicians who aren't comfortable in those shoes don't have to put on this mask of going oh I'm very outgoing. It's just knowing how to hold yourself and be gracious with an audience and that's something that any musician can learn and you can make it make it appropriate to what your personality and what your performance is like so for my research for this i went back into my my acting <laughs> my acting mode uh, and this is something that i have thought about for years and i've always done just on my own is using the ideas of dif different theater practitioners and using them to help build how I'm acting a piece of music. So once I've got all the technical stuff out of the way, once I know the notes, sort of what is the next layer? What, how do you approach that performance layer? And using, for my research, I used a Konstantin Stanislavski, who was a theatre practitioner who pioneered the naturalism form of acting, which is where you build a whole story around your character. You physically become the character on stage, which can be incredibly powerful. And then the other person who I've always focused on is Bertolt Brecht. Uh, who was a satirist and the father of epic theatre, which was a reaction against naturalism. And the whole idea is you go in and um, you know you're watching a play. You know you're watching a musician on stage. You're not supposed to suspend your disbelief in the same way as you are with a naturalism piece. And using these two different practitioners to find different ways of enhancing a musical performance, which I... I think can be useful for absolutely any musician. I love that. And I think that's what makes, you know, your research and who you are so unique because you're tying your acting experience in with your harp experience. Can you speak a little bit upon what you have done in your acting experience and what you've done as an actress? Sure. So I, when I was 17 and I was applying for undergraduates, I really wanted to apply for acting school as well. And I was dissuaded by my parents, I think because I had gone to music school for such a long time. They were like, no, you can't do another art form. No, stick with this one. And <laughs> I did eventually sort of theorize this and go, do you know what? I would miss playing the harp more than I would miss acting. Although it is a very, it is very close. I do, do miss um, acting on stage regularly. I, 
haven't haven't acted on stage regularly since I was 18, but it is something that I still miss. So instead, I try to find ways of combining the two together. So I have done a lot of commissioning of different theatrical works. And there are a couple that are already in the harp canon. So there's um, a piece called Mosquito Massacre, which is by Paul Patterson, which you're supposed to mime that there is a mosquito flying around your harp while you're trying to practice. And it's you basically <laughs> just play a lot of trills and basically Andy and I get to pull some very funny faces. Uh, I like to joke that I have a plasticine face. I just move it in one direction, it stays there. <laughs> And then the uh, the piece that I did my main research on for my lecture recital, which was published, The Crown of Ariadne, that piece is uh, actually taken from a theatrical work. R. Murray Schaefer, the composer, is also an avant-garde playwright. So that was a really interesting combination of the both. And I just used that as a launching point to pester composers. I, I jokingly say that I pester composers until they write for me. And so I've I've started to build a canon of theatrical harp repertoire, uh, which I was fortunate enough to get to perform at the uh, Dutch International Harp Competition, uh, the World Harp Competition, uh, a few years ago. When was that? 2018. And I was a semi-finalist because it was so weird and quirky. Yeah, that's so Um, cool. But aside from that, not playing the harp, I love putting on silly voices. I do not put on American accents unless someone has given me a glass of wine, but I I can put on (laughs) accents and I've done a little bit of voiceover work and I do narrations as well. So again, bringing in the more of the idea of music, I've done sort of narrations of Hansel and Gretel with wing quintets and I'm still, I still want to do Peter and the Wolf. I've never had the chance Mm -hmm. to do that one, but I enjoy being the sort of, are you sitting comfortably, children, then I'll begin. I, I can do that, I think, quite well. <laughs> That's awesome. And you mentioned before about how you were pretty involved in jazz as a harpist. Yes. Can you talk a little bit, because I feel like when people think of jazz music, they don't think of harp. <laughs> they like the don't. <laughs> you know? It'd be yeah. like oboe and harp would probably be in like the same sort of... <laughs> No, absolutely. Um, It's becoming more of a thing. I I think that's partly why I moved away from it is it started exploding and lots of people started doing it really well. And I was like, yeah, I don't don't have time for this anymore. (laughs) But have always been some jazz harpists. Uh, So Dorothy Ashby uh, was an incredible, incredible harpist. And she I think there is a jazz harp scholarship based in Holland that is named after her. She she was a black woman and she she was incredible. I think she also played the piano and she wrote her own songs and she toured around and Alice Coltrane was was also a jazz harpist. So there has been some precedence for it but uh, but then it kind of gets pushed to the side because I, something I always faced is uh, people coming up to me going, you can't play bebop on the harp. There's too many pedal changes. It's like, mm. really? <laughs> I will work my way around it. I can, but I know people who can play as far better than me, but I can play the solo in Donnelly on the harp. It's it's hard, but it's doable <laughs> and it's horribly pedally. But it's it's something that, again, you get pushed into a box because we again see the beautiful woman with the long hair and the gown coming down on the cloud. That's something that is really prevalent as you go into jazz as well. So 
being a very stubborn person, I was like, okay, I'm going to prove you wrong. I'm going to prove that I can do this. Yeah. And there are wonderful jazz harpists out there. One of my idols is Park Stickney, who he's actually a Juilliard grad, but he's known as a jazz harpist. His CDs are incredible. I've got to work with him uh, a few times and he's just he's such a delight. He's such a funny man, but he's got this long hair and he kind of stoops over the harp and the sounds he gets out of the instrument are incredible. One of his more recent things that he came up with in the last couple of years is a jazz arrangement of the Debussy dancers, which is obviously our harp concerto by Debussy. And he plays every single line, but puts a jazz twist on it. And it's so cool. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's something that people do still say, oh, you, you don't play jazz on the harp. You're just playing something that's jazzy. It's like, well, no, there are people who do this and front their own uh, trios or quartets. Uh, Tara Minton is someone who's doing particularly well at the moment. She's an Australian harpist and singer who is now based in London. And she's really good. She can, it's not the same as being a jazz pianist or a jazz saxophone player or jazz trumpeter, but she can still play all of these things and do all of the transcriptions and all the things that you're expected to do as a jazz performer. And her stuff is incredible. So it's, it's one of those that people just like to assume because it's not a stereotypical jazz instrument that you can't do it. Yeah. And I feel like like you said before, putting people into boxes. I feel like that happens to pretty much anyone that fits in any sort of stereotype, whether it's their instrument or their gender or their race or what oh, Absolutely. And yeah. it, it's, I know that I am not a stereotypical harpist. It's, uh, this is something that a lot of people come up to me and, and a lot of them, I just don't think they know when it's, they don't realize it's uh, insulting, but they're sort of like, oh, well, you're just going to do this with your career. I'm like, no, I, I want to do a mixture of different things. I love playing weird contemporary music. I love, I, the next day I want to be playing with a jazz group somewhere. The next day I'll be recording a CD. Like that's what makes the music world really wonderful for me. I think that's incredible. Yeah. If you want to be the person who is in orchestra day in, day out for 40 years, wonderful. That's really great. It's just something that I personally like having something else uh, to do and something else to explore within the art form. And I think a lot of people are getting to that stage as the world continues to change. Mm-hmm. And there also aren't that many jobs around. So you have to get... Yeah. yeah, and I was talking with someone else that I was interviewing and she's a trombonist. And we were talking about a few issues when it comes to being a classically trained musician and being in today's society and having classical training that has been traditionally the same way for so long. And one of the things is that these institutions prepare you for one thing, to be a symphony orchestra musician. Yeah. And she was talking about how, you know, she, she never wanted to be a symphony orchestra musician, but she had to go through all the training programs to get the degree. And then she went on to gig as a jazz musician and all these other things. And she said, so many kids just go get out of college and don't know how to improv. And then they can't find a job in a symphony orchestra. And guess what they end up doing? Yeah. Oh, no, that drives me insane. As So I don't think most harpists, a, a lot of classical musicians don't like improvising in general. And improvisation doesn't mean jazz. It can mean anything. I think that's another misconception that 
as soon as you say improvisation, again, you get put in that little hole of going, uh, or put in that box of, oh, you must be a jazz musician because you improvise. Like, well, no, there's lots of other ways of doing this. It's a skill that I like to teach my students at all levels to do. And some of them take, take to it like a duck to water and they adore it. And some of them it look like they're going to cry when I, ask, uh, when I give them some exercises to sort of just explore the instrument. Improvisation just helps you explore your instrument in a way that learning your scales and arpeggios and your big repertoire actually can't do. Yeah, It gives you a lot more freedom to play anything. And the most important thing is nothing is wrong. In improvisation, something might sound not great, but nothing is actually wrong. Uh, and I think that's very important to remember. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And, and I'm even one of those instruments that stereotypically is a jazz instrument. And because I came from such a classically trained program from the very beginning, I probably mm-hmm. would have been one of those kids that cried on you. <laughs> <laughs> Don't cry. It's not, it's not too bad. I, promise. I know. But, but the, uh, yeah, uh, so many kids just look terrified. I go, just, yeah. you can play anything, but also at the same time, you can play nothing. And you just see their brains kind of, internally explode and go I don't know what to do yeah, it, it's so much on notation it's yes, crazy yeah and my private teacher in high school uh even though I I knew I was going to go to a classically trained institution yada 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 he still made me improv for him in lessons he still made me learn solos he still made me transcribe he still made me do all these other things and I think it made me a better musician for it but in my school program I never had to do that I was in jazz band and I rarely had to improvise and it was it wasn't actually improvising it was kind of like puking out of my horn and (laughs) like every other public school kid ever so (laughs) So it's it's so important. And I think that even if you're not a jazz major at the collegiate level, you should still be learning those skills because when you go out into the real world and, you know, if you're not a full-time symphony orchestra musician, that is stuff that you're going to have to do when you go around and you gig almost in any context. So if you don't have those skills, then you're doing yourself a disservice. Oh, absolutely. And I, at the, going back to the symphony orchestra jobs, I I mean, orchestras aren't going to be coming back in their full form for a little while. You need to be able to diversify and do something else. Even if you only want to do something in the arts, you feel you can only do something with music, you have to find something that's not playing the Nutcracker cadenza. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And yeah, it's something that I think as a teacher, uh, I'm very passionate about doing I there are certain pieces of music that you kind of have to learn and then I like to challenge my students so I what I had done for my college level kids is every year they always had to do a piece by a female composer on their program actually something that I'm going to adjust going forward is every year they have to do oh and they have to do a piece by a living composer as well because they have to play contemporary music even if it is not the Berio Sequenza. Not everyone wants to play the Berio Sequenza and that's okay. <laughs> but now I'm in implementing a new thing where they also have to play a piece by a composer of color as well. Now, those three can be combined together. They might find a piece by a female identifying composer of color who's still alive. And that's fine. That ticks all the boxes. But it means that they have to 
look outside the normal lexicon of Hindemith and Marcel Grosjeunet, which is all music that you have to learn, and Debussy, of course. But it means that you're also exploring music that not everyone's going to have heard. And yeah. you might find something that becomes a new piece of gem. A new piece of gem. That is a very odd phrase. A new gem of the repertoire. Uh, and I, I think that's incredibly important. Oh, yeah. I completely agree. And we like to learn the same. Every kid has to play the same pieces over and over and over again. And yeah. It's like part of you know, your education and being aware of those things. But the only way we can keep the musical art form alive and current and people still being involved in it is if people start to play new music. Oh, absolutely. And it's something that a very dear colleague of mine, it's a tuba player, Jack Adler McKean, who is wonderful. He makes the tuba into a solo instrument and I don't know how he does it. (laughs) But he once said to me uh, during our undergrad that, the reason why people don't like contemporary music is because you're saturated by it and it's very difficult to find the gems of the repertoire because we're living in the era. Mm-hmm. Things that are really good will eventually, hopefully, they'll rise to the top and people will start playing them in 20 years, 50 years, 100 years. Yeah. And the same thing happened during Mozart's time or Beethoven's time. There were so many other composers around that, yes, Mozart and Beethoven rose to the top over time. But there was also one that, (laughs) an example that was used in my freshman history class was Ebel, who is a contemporary of Mozart. And no one knows who Ebel is. He probably was not as refined or not quite as good or or he just got lost over time. And that's kind of the interesting thing with new music is you have to wade through a lot of stuff to find the gems of it. But isn't that the best part of it? Yeah, because Mozart died relatively like he wasn't very wealthy when he passed away he wasn't famous but for example like telemann was huge back then and yes and not many people well i i would assume that a lot of people are aware of who telemann was but are a lot of us playing his music no i can think of no i i don't even think i can hum a telemann tune just off the top of my head whereas i can (laughs) i can hum the marriage of figaro really yeah (laughs) it's Yeah. yeah Very interesting what history, what people they choose to have a lasting impact or all of a sudden resurface later. So I, yes. I completely understand that sentiment. And But I also think that the more diverse repertoire we can play, the more we're giving those composers a fighting chance to last longer. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, that's really important. And I hope that... I, I've clearly been watching Hamilton a little too much recently, but leaving behind a legacy. I, I hope that there are pieces of music that become pieces that are go-tos in the repertoire because of stuff that I have either commissioned or pieces that sort of have resurfaced and I have either played or students of mine have played. And I think that's that's how we keep the keep everything going around in the art form. Yeah. And I think it's so great that you as a teacher are having your students do that and play new music and explore different diverse composers because the issue is not that there's a lack of music being written, it's that it's not being performed. Yes. Yes. And one of the things going forward is, again, orchestras, pandemic, not a great combination. This is this is the time of chamber music and solo music. That's the yes. way we're going to eke back into this yes. because you can have smaller 
at smaller venues with socially distanced audiences. You can perform multiple times. People have the choice of different programs. There could be like 20 different chamber programs and solo programs in the same city. And they will be serving the same amount of people who go and watch Rochester or Buffalo Phil on a Sunday. So it also helps to diversify everyone's palate. So that's that's what I hope will happen going forward so that it's not seen as a, oh, you do this as well as your orchestral job. Yeah, I completely agree. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on and talking with us today and sharing your experiences. I think we got into a really good conversation about new music and diversifying repertoire and how harp can be used in jazz too. Yes. <laughs> Love it. Well, thank love you so much for having me. This has been yeah, absolutely lovely. Awesome. My heart friends will love to hear that you play jazz music. Yes. Yes. <laughs> love it. <laughs>